Well, I welcome in those who are joining us live now on the web. It's good to have you be a part of worship with us today as uh, also welcoming all of you in the room. Uh, today we are uh, diving back into the book of Philippians. It's the fourth part of a study on finding lasting happiness in life. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it is Father's Day, and I'm reminded of a little story uh, about a father and son. The little boy came and uh, crawled up in his daddy's lap, and he was just all smiles from ear to ear and just giggly. And the dad looked at him and said, well, what's going on with you that you just have got such a big smile? And he just said, I don't know, Daddy, my heart's just full of happiness. And so they sat and kind of snuggled and talked for a little bit. And the little boy hopped down and said, well, I'm going to go play with Brian now. And he went off to find his brother to play with him. And it wasn't very many minutes before the little boy uh, came back in the room. And this time his hands were in his pockets and a big frown had replaced the smile. His bottom lip was rolled out and he walked over to his dad. And his dad said, well, what happened to you? You just had a heart full of happiness just a little while ago. What happened to that? He said, Brian made it all leak out. Well, how many of you know that life really does work that way? That you can have those days where you are just rocking along and life is good and your heart is just absolutely full of happiness until you bump into that person. And it's like they just poke a hole in your heart and lets all the joy leak out. And there are so many things that can do that in life. It can be a person. It can be a conversation. It can be one phone call. It can be a blue light in your rearview mirror. It can be somebody, you know, cutting you off or, uh, you know, giving you the uh, one finger peace symbol out there, out their window in traffic or something. You know, any of those kinds of things. It's just it's amazing how quickly that can poke a, a hole in your heart and the joy just suddenly is gone. What we're going to be talking about today are some very specific practical exercises that we learn from Paul about how to to maintain a happiness that endures through the bumps and the surprises and the things that are going to happen to you. And so we're going to look at a passage. Some of this is really familiar stuff in Philippians 2 where uh, we're going to hear Paul reference some different things that are going to remind us, as you'll see at the top of your outline, of some different things that can cause us to lose our happiness. Five different things that tend to punch a hole in your heart and some things that you can do that are very practical exercises to keep you from losing your joy in the course of the day. It's very simple, practical stuff. And uh, we want to go ahead and just dive straight into the Scriptures. I'm going to be reading this morning from the New Century Version. Where, uh, beginning in verse 12 of Philippians 2, Paul says this, My dear friends, you have always obeyed, obeyed God when I was with you. It is even more important that you obey now while I am away from you. Because remember, uh, Paul is in prison. He's the one who founded this church. He is their spiritual father, and they haven't seen him in a long time. And he's been in prison now for four years. Uh, and he says to them, Keep on working to complete your salvation with fear and trembling, because God is working in you to help you want to do and to be able to do what pleases Him. That's really good news. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Then you will be innocent and without any wrong. You will be God's children without fault. But you are living with crooked and mean people all around you, among whom you shine like stars in the dark world. Well, there's a big part of why it can be hard to hang on to your joy when you live among people like that. He says, you offer the teaching that gives life. So when Christ comes again, I can be happy because my work was not wasted. I ran the race and won. Your faith makes you offer your lives as a sacrifice in serving God. And if I have to offer my own blood with your sacrifice... I will be happy 
and full of joy with all of you, and you also should be happy and full of joy with me. Don't you just kind of shake your head in amazement every time we tackle another part of this letter when you realize the circumstances that this guy is living in and has been living in for four years, and it's like at every turn, he's just going, I'm telling you, my heart is overflowing with joy in spite of my circumstances, and I want you to be at the same place that I am. I want you to have this same kind of joy. And along the way, he keeps referencing these different things that become for us very specific habits to build into our lives, that if we'll do this, it really is going to give us an ability to have a real lasting joy and happiness in life. And so I want you to, before we dive into these five exercises for the day, I want you to notice what really to me is the most important part of the passage. And it's verses 12 and 13 where in the NIV it says this, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Two key phrases in that little passage. Work in and work out. Now, it would be real easy to read that passage, and if that's all that you knew about salvation, to go, ooh, it's a little bit scary there, as Paul says, you continue to work out your salvation. If that's the only thing that you heard about salvation, it would be really easy to draw the, the incorrect conclusion that, oh, salvation must be this thing that you're going to have to work at for years and years and years to actually get to be saved. You come to trust Christ, and then you work, 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 and maybe one day you get to go to heaven if you work out your salvation well enough. Some people come to that conclusion, and that would be completely wrong. That is not at all the teaching of Scripture, and it absolutely is not what, if you read Paul's writings, that is not what Paul is saying here. What he is alluding to is that there are two parts to you living out your salvation. He says, it is God who works in. We said, work in and work out are the two key phrases. God is the one who works in. And what God works into you is eternal salvation. For you to belong to the family of God, you, you're not going to reverse that or undo that. God is the one who puts that into you, and that is His doing. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, could anything be more straightforward? In other words, you're never going to do anything that's going to earn your way into belonging to the family of God. He says, it is not of works, and if it was, then somebody, you know, you'd be bragging about it. Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we could work our way there? It'd be a miserable place. Everybody bragging about what they did to earn their position in heaven. That's not how you get there. God has to work something into you for you to be saved. And once he's done that, what Paul is saying is from that point forward, now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. An easy analogy is to think in terms of when you go to the gym to work out. Now think before you answer this. When you go to the gym and exercise, do you create new muscles when you go to the gym? Do you come out with more muscles in terms of numbers than what you had when you went in? Well, no, of course not. You were born with the same number of muscles that you have today unless you got an arm torn off or something. The only difference is the person who goes to the gym on a regular basis, they work out the muscles that God worked into them. And so over time, you can easily identify the person that you go, wow, I've got the same number of muscles that they have, but they've obviously been working theirs out a lot more than I've been working mine out. You can see the difference. They have developed. They have grown. And in terms of your spiritual development, 
Paul says, you need to be doing some things that are going to allow you to not be a spiritual 97-pound weakling. I mean, isn't it funny to look at two people, one who works out regularly and one who has never seen the inside of a gym, one who's never had calluses on his hands because he's never done a day of hard work in his life, and you realize God gave them both the same number of muscles, and one of them can barely get up off the couch, much less much less you know, lift anything or do any work. And the other one can work from daylight until dark and never give out. Why? Because one has been exercising what God gave to him in spiritual terms. That's what Paul is talking about. Everybody here that belongs to the family of God, you've had essentially the same things built into you. God has poured into you salvation, the gift of His Holy Spirit. He's poured spiritual gifts into you. Now, the question is, are you working out what God has worked in? And what we're going to look at today are five different specific exercises, we'll call them, for you to work out your salvation in a real practical way. That if you do this, you're going to be that person that looks different, that the world's going to look at and go, wow, there is something about them that is so winsome. I want what they have because there really is a radiance and a joy about them. And in addressing these, we're going to see five things that can easily sort of let the air out of the tires that would, would naturally sort of rob you of that type of joy. And so I've given you in the outline there that, you know, the five ways that, that are referenced that we could lose our happiness. And Paul gives us the antidotes, the spiritual antidotes in five different parts of this passage. But we're going to begin today by talking about the first of these five where the problem that can rob us of joy and happiness is fearing that we're out there completely on our own. And everybody has felt this, the fear of being alone, the fear of having to face the hard stuff of life alone. It's why things uh, like divorce seem so incredibly frightening, the thought that you might have to go through the rest of your life alone. And the feeling of, I, I don't think I could handle that. I, think, I don't think I could do life alone. And the thing that Paul is reminding us in the first passage here, first part of the passage, is the antidote for that is to remember and constantly rehearse that God is with me. He is in me and He is for me. And I can promise you this, if you belong to God, if you've trusted Christ, whatever you face this week or this year, you can be sure of this. God will be with you, He will be in you, and He will be for you. In verse 13, he says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Aren't you encouraged to read that? I mean, I, I know when I look at my own life, some of the most disturbing things that I realize about me are that not only do I fail to live up to what God calls me to many times, but the scarier part of the equation is when I really look at my own heart, I realize, man, there are way too many times where not only am I not saying or doing the right thing, I don't want to. Anybody ever feel that besides me? It's like there's a, there's a bigger problem than my failure to perform, and it is the lack of desire to do the right thing. It's like, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to get inside your own head or heart and change your wanter? Because you don't want to do the right stuff. And Paul says, here's the really cool thing. When you come to trust Christ, God is working in you to change you from the inside out so that you have a different will. 
He is giving you the desire to live differently. And oh, by the way, He's going to give you the power and ability to perform the new desires that He stirs up inside of you. Thank you, Jesus. Because I have figured this out. I don't have the strength or the ability to change my own desires. But when I press in and draw near to Christ, my desires begin to change. And suddenly it's not difficult to change my behavior when I want a whole different batch of things. And so he said, understand God is in you, working in you. That word working is the Greek word energos. Obviously, we get the word energy from that. Just reminding us that God says, I'll be your power source. You don't have to operate on willpower. I'm the one that's going to give you the will and the power to do that. So he says, I'm in you. But he's also, you know, Jesus has just promised, I'm not just going to be like a passenger just sort of riding along passively. I am truly going to be with you. In John 14, Jesus reminds us that He'll be with us. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Now get this part. He says, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Will you just picture what He's saying here? Jesus is reminding us that His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which the Scripture calls the Spirit of Jesus Christ, lives inside of you. Now, that's comforting in itself right there. Everywhere you go, the Spirit of Jesus Christ goes because He is in you. All of the power of God, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it dwells inside you. But Jesus said, I want you to see more of the picture than this. The Spirit of Christ is in you. And He said, you are in me. And oh, by the way, Jesus said, and I am in my Father. Wow. I mean... That's quite a picture right there to realize when the enemy wants to get to you, he's got to go through the Father and the Son. And if he could get through the Father and the Son to get to you, if he tries to get inside of you, he's going to find the Holy Ghost waiting there inside of you. Now, that doesn't mean the enemy doesn't attack you and he doesn't mess with your mind and try and make you physically sick and do this stuff. But it is a great reminder that there is never a moment of time in your life once you become a child of God that you don't have the Spirit of Jesus in you and the Lord Jesus saying, I'm wrapping you up and I'm in my Father. We are all right there with you. Everything that you get into, the good and the bad, the things that others do to you, the messes that you make for yourself, we are right there with you. Isn't that comforting to know? Is this thing working? Is that good news? Is that comforting? All right, I just want to make sure you're there with me. That's not all. That He didn't just say, I'm, I'm with you and I'm in you. He goes a step further to say that He is for us. Paul in Romans 8.31 says this, If God is for us, no one can defeat us. If we just got real honest with each other, though, do you ever just wonder where you personally really stand with God? I mean, it's like at one level, it's one thing to know, okay, God has declared that everyone who belongs to Christ, He's going to place His Spirit in them. So He's rocking along and He's going wherever we go. In some places, He's not real happy we went. But, you know, He's there because He promised He'd be there. But beyond that, beyond the thing of God goes everywhere with His kids. But how is God toward you? Does He just put up with you? Is He just hanging on to you because you trusted Christ and so He's got to still claim you as His own, but you're like the disappointing stepchild. I mean, how is God toward you? Do you ever wonder about that? I do. In fact, I, I'm just going to be real transparent and tell you, a few weeks ago, I was just having a day that I just needed to get really honest with the Lord. And I was just taking a, a walk and talking with the Lord. 
And it was just one of those days I needed for my heart to really hear from his heart. And I, I just laid it all bare and said, God, I need to know where I stand with you. I'm not talking in terms of salvation. I'm talking about my relationship with you. There are some things I don't understand. And there are some days where I really wonder where I stand with you. I wonder what you think of me. Because it's, it's not like a relationship where I can look in somebody else's face and go, oh, it's really clear, I can just see it in your eyes that you love me and you're for me and you, you know, we're, we're just on the same page. God, there are some days where I feel your nearness, but there are other seasons I don't seem like I hear anything from you and I'll ask you about things and I don't know if I'm hearing anything back. And, I mean, there are just times, God, where I look at the things that have gone in my life and, and I just wonder, what do you really think about all this? Are you just like fed up with me? Am I the child that you're just sick of and so you sort of set aside? I just want to know where I stand with you. You ever talk to God like that? You ever just need to get a clear answer? And I want to tell you, it was so sweet how how God responded to me in that. And how in the last few weeks, He has been so clearly responding to that real straightforward prayer that He just has been pressing in and just showing me things about myself that I haven't really thought about in a long time, that it's clearly the work of His Spirit. Just pointing things out and saying, you know this about you that you don't often think about, that seems sort of odd to you about yourself? I made you that way. And I'm crazy about that. I made you just... You know this about you that, that isn't like most of the people around you and seems a little odd? I made that in you. And I'm crazy about that too. I, I did that on purpose. You didn't decide to be that way. I made you that way. And I love that about you. You know what the bottom line in that is? God isn't just in us. He isn't just with us. He is for us. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? Who can defeat us? I'll tell you the answer to that. Nobody. No one. And so every day of your life, I'll give you a great thing to do to start the day. Wake up in the morning and you just rehearse this. God, I thank you that today... You are with me. God, I thank you that you are in me. And beyond that, I thank you that today, Lord, you are going to be for me. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. If you believe it, I want you to say it with me. God is with us. God is in us. God is for us. All right, you got it? Now let's try it again. God is with us. God is in us. And God is for us. We need to wake up daily remembering and rehearsing and giving thanks for that. That will answer the fear of, oh no, I'm all alone. And then a second thing, a second exercise, is to, to be careful to choose to be grateful and not grumble. The second big cause for losing our happiness that we bump into here is the whole thing of just fretting about all of the small stuff of life and getting stirred up and, and just focusing on that and grumbling about it and just letting that just stir in us. Paul's solution is that we've got to learn to be grateful rather than grumble. You know, this is a really hard habit for us to, to break where he tells us to, to not do anything grumbling or arguing, to, to do everything without that because we're just wired from birth naturally so negative do you notice that about yourself or about the people around you just how naturally we like to grumble about things when something didn't go our way we, we like to focus in on that we like to talk about that do, do you find yourself doing that or you live with somebody who loves to do that 
we're just grumblers by nature. And, you know, you look all the way back to the first couple, Adam and Eve. And, and ever since then, we've been negative like this. It's like excusing and accusing sort of becomes our norm. This is, this is how we grumble. We excuse our own behavior and we accuse somebody else of making us unhappy, right? I mean, isn't that what Adam and Eve did? God gave real simple instructions. He gave them tremendous freedom, very little limitations. And, and they violated like the one thing they were prohibited from doing. And when God comes and confronts Adam for that, what does he do? Excuse and accuse. When, you know, the Lord speaks to Adam, you haven't eaten tree from the fruit that I told you not to eat from, have you? What's Adam's immediate response to that? Well, Lord, you know, it's that woman that you gave to me. It was her. It's like, we're going to excuse the fact that you, were, you told me, you weren't talking to her, you told me to make sure we didn't eat this. We're going to completely excuse that and forget that. And instead, we're going to accuse her of causing all the problems. That sounds like how we operate, doesn't it? You know, we excuse our bad decisions and our bad attitudes, but we are quick to point out what other people have done and be negative and grumble about what everybody else has done to rob us of our happiness. We're grumblers. Paul says, if you will just choose not to be a grumbler. Now, I want to take a moment to sort of flesh out because that, that idea of being a grumbler, that, that sounds really vague. So I want to press in for just a moment and point out four different types of grumblers and see if you don't recognize all of these and uh, try not to elbow somebody seated next to you as we move through this list. First type of grumbler that you'll recognize is the whiner. You don't know any whiners, do you? These are the people who, they wake up in the morning, and instead of rise and shine, they rise and whine. They wake up in the morning, and instead of saying, Good morning, Lord, they say, Good Lord, it's morning. You, you know the whiner. Everything's just against them. Life is just so hard. They choose to start the day looking for the bad. There's the whiner, and then there's, there are the martyrs. You know the martyrs, don't you? They're always sacrificing for others. Everything's a sacrifice for them. and They're just, everything's against them. Everybody's against them. They'll just, they might as well eat worms and die. Because everything is against them. Hypochondriacs tend to be martyrs. I'm reminded of the, the woman who's a hypochondriac her whole life. And the last thing she did in life was she, she mapped out what she wanted the guy to, to put on her tombstone. And so sure enough, when she was laid to rest and they came and looked and it said there on her tombstone, I'd been trying to tell you for 50 years I was about to get sick and now maybe you'll believe me. That's the hypochondriac, the martyr there. Then there are the cynics. Now they take a completely different approach. The cynic, they, it's not a thing of, of whining or being a martyr. Cynic just poisons everything by saying, you know, what's the point? What's the use? It's not going to get any better. You can't help it. It's just, this is just the way it is. I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. Can't make any difference. It's just a poisonous attitude. And then the last one, last kind of grumbler, is the perfectionist. Nothing's ever good enough for them. Nothing that they do, nothing anybody else does. If you're the child of a perfectionist and you bring home A's and B's, well, why aren't they all A's? If you bring home all A's, well, why aren't there A pluses on you? You, know, you, just, you can't ever satisfy the perfectionist. So they're always grumbling about what should have been done better. What, what They don't praise what has been accomplished. They focus in on what could have been done better than what it was. All of these are different forms of of grumbling, and the net result is 
it focuses so much on the negative in one form or another that it robs them and the people around them of any lasting happiness. And you may say, yeah, that's a, that's a bad habit to have, but I mean, is it really that big a deal? When you think about what Jesus said about our words, grumbling is really a big deal. Jesus said in Matthew 12, one of the toughest verses in all the Bible, verse 36 of Matthew 12, He said, I tell you the truth that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. There is so much power in the words that you speak. And when you're grumbling and grousing about the negative, whether it's with yourself or grumbling about, you know, accusing everybody else of how they've made your life miserable and what they've done and the implication is, you know, you're what makes my life so difficult. All of that grumbling, those are careless words that are impacting you and other people. And Jesus said, you know, that matters and you'll give an account of what comes out of your mouth. Think about how much thought and effort we put into trying to control what we put in our mouths. And Jesus, in that same conversation, said, It is not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It is what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. It matters what we say. So Paul gives us a good antidote for this in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, Instead of all this negative talk, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. People are all the time asking, how do I find God's will for my life? It's amazing how much of God's will is clearly spelled out in His Word. He says, you want to know a beginning point for God's will for you? Give thanks in every circumstance of life. Now, that may sound like a cruel joke. If you, if you read, don't read that passage very carefully, if you just kind of blow through it, it's like, so is God saying, whatever happens, we're supposed to go, woohoo, I sure am happy that I got this terrible diagnosis from the doctor. Cancer was exactly what I was hoping to hear. Thank you, Jesus. That was good news. No. Is He telling you to give thanks for you know, the tragedies of life and injustices? No, not at all. It would be morally wrong and perverse for you to give thanks for evil, for corruption. When you see prejudice, when you see, you know, injustice, when you see racism, when you see and hear about, you know, rape and crime and any kind of victimization, you certainly shouldn't give thanks for those things. God doesn't want you to give thanks for those things. But what Paul says is, in all circumstances, you can give thanks not for the circumstance. You can give thanks in the face of those. What do you give thanks for? Oh, there are lots of things to give thanks for. We can give thanks for the fact that in spite of this happening, we know God's in us and with us and for us. We know the promise of God's Word, Romans 8, 28, that God can work all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't mean God's causing any of these things. God doesn't cause evil. God doesn't call, cause people to become victims. God's heart is grieved by those things, but He is so good because He is the God who takes crucifixions and deaths and He turns them into resurrections. He is the God who replaces ashes with beauty. Mourning and weeping, He replaces with laughter and dancing. He is the God who can take the worst circumstances and choices of your life and He is so good that He can move things around in such a way that they're going to wind up causing the greatest strengths and the most, most powerful ministries that you'll ever have to be birthed out of the most painful things that you've ever walked through. That's how good God is. So can you give thanks in all circumstances? You better know that you can. Because there
there is a good God who is bigger than all of the junk that the world and the enemy can throw at you. Does that stuff hurt? You better know it does. And it doesn't make it fun when you're going through it, but you can have joy going... Thank you, God. Thank you that as I walk through the deep waters, I am not alone. I belong to you. I belong to your family. I'm not wondering if I'm going to drown. I'm not wondering if I'm going to come out on the other side. I know the outcome, God. I'm going to be stronger. You're going to get glory. People are going to be ministered to. Your will is going to be accomplished in spite of all the junk. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. We can give thanks in all circumstances. And Paul is saying, you know what? You choose. You choose every day whether to grumble and focus on the negative and grouse about that or whether to choose instead. I'm going to give thanks for the goodness of God, the faithfulness and nearness of God in all of this. Third exercise. He says, do everything you have to do to keep your conscience clear. Because a third thing that absolutely will rob you of happiness is guilt or shame. I mean, you know, when you are just eaten up with guilt over how you've hurt someone or how you've grieved the heart of God, when you know you're in the wrong and you just can't get that out of your head, doesn't that just, it's like letting all the air out of the balloon. Oh, I know I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. You know, there's a part of us that is like, I don't know how I'm going to make this right, but until I I make this right, I, I just, I feel so gross inside. Paul said in verse 15, Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Now, there are two parts to being able to carry a clear conscience. And the Word speaks to these over and over. 1 John chapter 2 is a good example where he references the two parts of having a clear conscience. The first part is to obey what God says. That's not real complicated, is it? David says in Psalm 119, Happy. There's our key word. Happy are those who live pure lives, who follow the Lord's teaching. Happy are those who keep His rules, who try to obey Him with their whole heart. Obviously, when you're doing the right thing, there's no reason to carry around a guilty conscience. But the second half of the equation is when you've blown it. And we so often do, we've got to be quick to confess. He goes on to say, David does in Psalm 32, What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. Boy, those are three things that everybody wants, aren't they? Happiness, joy, relief. What do they all come from in this passage? What does he say gives it? Forgiveness. David talks about, you know, I just felt like there was this heavy weight on me. I felt like something was eating me up from the inside until I confessed my guilt to God. When I confessed my sins, suddenly joy and happiness were restored. I felt a tremendous sense of relief. He's just telling us the two sides of the coin. David says, you know what? I am so happy when I live my life by your law and according to your word. There's so much joy that comes with that. But oh, by the way, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I blow it. Well, I'm right there with David. I know the happiness that comes with obedience, and I know the misery that comes with disobedience. But David said, it is so cool when I go to God and I confess there's so much relief and joy and happiness that's restored. The moment that I agree with God, I allow the blood of Jesus to cover my sin, and it's dealt with. That's what John's talking about in 1 John 2, when he says, these things 
have I written unto you that you may not sin. In other words, so that you'll do the right thing. However, when we have sinned, he says, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, His only Son, who speaks on our behalf. Confession and a commitment to do the right thing. Now, when it comes to confession, I would just remember, you know, I would remind you that these are exercises and these are daily exercises. Just as starting the day by giving thanks to God is with you, in you, and for you, start every day or end every day taking time for confession. This doesn't have to be a lengthy thing. You don't have to sit there and do a lengthy moral inventory. But it's like taking out the trash. Hadn't you ever noticed that if you cook very much, you better take out the trash every day or what happens? The house stinks. Well, spiritually, if you don't take out the trash on a daily basis, your life stinks. Your soul stinks. Your attitude stinks. Confession allows that stuff to be completely removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So keep short accounts with God. Be quick to confess. Take time every day to pause. Ask the Holy Spirit to search you. Be specific in your confession. And oh, by the way, when something has been confessed, you haven't gone back and done it again. You don't need to go back and keep confessing and keep confessing and asking forgiveness. Once you've confessed it and asked for forgiveness, God says it is remembered no more. It is cast into the depths of the sea, never to be dredged up again. Isn't that great to know? No more reason for guilt and shame. That's why Paul could say, there's therefore, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't have to carry any of that junk around anymore. No more guilt and shame. Now the fourth issue that Paul deals with and gives us a, an exercise for is the problem of worry that comes from forgetting what God has promised. And, and so now I've got all this other stuff that I'm, I'm worried about that I think I'm responsible for. And his solution to that is to memorize God's Word and to live by it. There is a, a shocking percentage of the American population that uh, today is struggling with depression. It's uh, somewhere around tenfold. The rate of depression in America is about tenfold what it was 60 years ago. We're not talking about the raw numbers. We're talking about the percentage of people who are depressed is ten times greater than it was 60 years ago when our grandparents were our age. Now, that, that's a wild thing to consider, isn't it? I mean, something is going on. But we just feel so worried and depressed and, and overwhelmed. Part of what we need is to have our minds renewed. There are a lot of different things that can be going on in terms of depression. There, there's clinical depression that can be purely chemical and taking the right medication can provide tremendous relief when it brings the body chemistry back in line. And so praise God for that gift. It's a gift from Him to be able to take care of it. Some of the, the stuff that leads to all this depression and weight that we carry, it can be very relational and counseling and, and some things that we can do to set relationships in order to provide a great deal of relief. But I'll tell you, for many, many people, a big part of the equation is a spiritual piece. And what we need is to have our minds renewed. And the, the Word of God is clear that the truth of the Word renews our minds. So much of the time, when we get pulled down and our, our thoughts just stay in these dark, dark places, and, and it becomes... The way that, that your mind actually functions, I mean, what takes place inside your noggin for, for thoughts to actually occur. I mean, do you ever just consider what a, what a complex and amazing thing it is for for your mind to work the way that it does. But how there are certain thoughts that you run back to. I mean, depression is evidence of this. 
Do you ever find yourself with stinking thinking, you know, where your thoughts continue to run back to like an old familiar track? And you can like you can feel it happening. It's like, oh my goodness, I know when I start thinking like this, I know where it's going to go because it goes back to an old track. It's a well-worn path. It's like, you know, a place in a field that you've walked so many times. It's like a cattle trail, you know. There's no grass there anymore because you, you've walked there so much. Do you know that there are neural patterns in your brain that that are the equivalent of that? That once certain neurons fire, that it, it's going to follow a particular path through your brain so that the same thoughts get repeated again and again. It's like replaying a tape or a DVD again and again. You, you just get the same thing. It's like, oh my goodness, we just got started down that line and I know now the loop that I'm going to take. And it's been, it's been run a thousand times. And we just start going to a dark place because these are unhealthy thought patterns. The Word of God changes that course. Where you're, every time you, you take this particular turn in your thoughts, and it's going to go down the same track. The Word of God takes you down a different path. And it creates a whole new circuit so that as you begin to rehearse this, it starts creating a new trail, a new pathway. This is what meditating on the Word of God does for you. It gives you a whole new neural pattern in your brain. And it gives you, I mean, it, it, it has a supernatural effect on your whole being. Not only on how you're thinking, but on how you're feeling emotionally and physically. It's powerful what it'll do. Memorizing the Word of God can begin to lift you out of depression. It can, it can do so much to change who you are and how you function. Paul said in verse 16, hold firmly to the Word of life. What is the Word of life? This. The Word of God is what he's talking about. He says you hold firmly to this, to this thing. Does he just mean you need a good copy that, that you can carry around with you and you just hold it right here? Well, you know, it's not a bad thing to have the Bible with you, but I can just tell you, you can carry it all the time and it not do you a lick of good. Because the Word of God, while it's between these, you know, a leather front end and back end held like this, doesn't do me one bit of good. If I can't get it from here into here and here, it doesn't do me any good. You can't hold firmly to the Word of God without doing six different things with it. I want you to think in terms of that, that whole analogy of holding it firmly. I want you to think about your hand when we talk about holding the Word of God firmly. I want to give you six things. Yes, I have five fingers, but I've also got a palm. So here's your six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Here's what I want you to remember. Six things to do with the Word of God. You need to hear it. You need to read it. You need to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, and to apply it, to live it out. And for some of you who are trying to scribble that down, I'm going to say it again. Hear it, read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, and apply it. Now, the problem for a lot of Christians, a huge number of Christians is, we have done, in a typical week, we have done one of these six. We go to church. And we hear it. We get the professional religious guy to stand up on the stage and read us the Word of God and teach us the Word of God. And, and listen, that is a healthy part of life. The people of God throughout all generations, this has been an important practice. We should hear the Word of God. It's actually a scriptural instruction. We need to hear the Word of God taught. But if that is the extent of your hold on the Word of God, you know what that looks like? It looks like this. You know, I, I got a one finger hold on the Word of God. This is my grip on the Word of God. One of six that I'm like trying to, okay, seems like the preacher 
said something about worry on Sunday. Here's what you can know about hearing the Word of God. This is a fact. 90 to 95% of what I'm teaching today, you will have forgotten 72 hours from now. By lunchtime Wednesday, you will forget 90 to 95% of what you heard in church on Sunday. It's part of the reason I never stand to teach that I don't give you a, an outline, and it's not an outline that's completely filled in. Some of you may look at this and go, why don't you just, if you're going to give us an outline, why don't you give us a completed outline? The reason for that is we learn at a deeper level when we see it in writing and when we have to interact with that. The teachers in the room are nodding their heads. You get this. When you actually have to interact at a level of not just hearing it, but also reading it and also interacting and writing it, you walk away with greater retention than if you just heard it. So that's the reason we're taking it beyond that. So hear the Word of God, reading the Word of God, taking time every day to just read through. I encourage you to do that systematically, chapter by chapter. Pick a book, read from start to finish, taking a little bit every day. Hear it, read it, study it, memorize it. David says in uh, uh, Psalm 119, verse 16, he says, Your laws make me happy. I never forget your word. Committing it to memory is such a big, big part of the equation. And I, I know, because I hear adults say this all the time, and I get it at 46, I, I feel some of this, but adults will say, you know, well, I used to could memorize stuff, but I just, I can't memorize anymore. Well, let me just tell you, that's not really true. It may not come as easy as it used to, but you can. And our experience in God group this summer is great uh, proof of that. I, one of the things in experience in God that you do is there's a memory verse for every week that, that you learn. And hadn't it been encouraging to watch the group? Man, on a weekly basis, we come in there and, you know, now we're several weeks into the deal. And we rehearse all these verses every week. And it's so cool to hear 30-something people together, man, just spitting these things out from start to finish. It begins John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And to hear just everybody in the room just go into town all the way up to this week's memory verse, just a great reminder, you can memorize the Word of God. Now, meditating on the Word of God, that's a thing that's kind of foreign for us. It's like, isn't that an Eastern practice? Yeah, but it's, it's actually a Christian practice. And I used to think, I don't really know how to meditate. I'm not any good at meditating. Somebody reminded me, do, do you know how to worry? I'm like, yeah, I really know how to do that. And they're like, then you know how to meditate because worry is meditating on a negative issue. I mean, what, what do you do when you worry? You think about something negative that's going on or negative that might happen and you rehearse that and you chew on it. All it is is meditating on a negative idea. So it's like you already know how to meditate. Christian meditation is taking a biblical truth and choosing to remember that and rehearse it again and again. So just picking a verse to memorize, picking a verse that, hey, this week, I just, I feel like my soul needs this. And so I'm just going to, through the day and through the week, I'm going to just chew on that. I'm going to call it back to my remembrance. And then obviously, uh, just applying what we've learned. But David says uh, further along in the 119th Psalm, Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where happiness is found. We've got to get a grip on the Word of God. And then the, the fifth and final thing, fifth exercise is this. It's addressing the issue of just getting so focused on yourself. The person who is completely self-centered is never a happy person. Um, and in place of that, Paul's telling us, use your life to serve God by serving others. The only way, we talked about this last week, the only way you're going to have lasting happiness is by giving your life away. 
giving your life away to serve others. You, you were wired to do this. This is when you function like Jesus, when you're giving your time, your energy, your resources to serve people who can't pay you back. And this is how you serve God, by serving others. Jesus said in Matthew 25, in the final accounting of things, when we stand before God, this is going to be such a huge part of the whole reward and punishment thing is, did you serve God by serving others? And Jesus said, you know, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto, unto me. This is how you serve me, by serving others. God has wired us to find our greatest satisfaction, our greatest fulfillment by serving other people. In Mark 8.35, Jesus said, If you insist on saving your life for yourself, you will lose it. Only those who sacrificially give away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to truly live. That's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Only those who sacrificially give themselves away will ever know what it means to truly live. Because we are so wired to think the more I can accumulate for me, the more experiences that I can create that are designed for my pleasure, the more I'll really live. And he said, it's so backwards. The more you live like that, the less you experience real life. The more you give your life away, the more you really live. Service and generosity are the indispensable parts of lasting happiness. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is this simple. If you aren't serving God by serving others in some tangible way, if you aren't serving and you aren't giving, you aren't following Jesus. You may define yourself as a Christian, you may have prayed the sinner's prayer. You may be in the family of God, but I promise you, you aren't following Jesus if you aren't serving and you aren't giving. Because that's what Jesus did. He says, that's what I came to do. This is what my mission was all about. It was about serving others and giving all the way to the point of eventually giving my very life. If you don't serve and you don't give, you don't follow Jesus. You may be religious. You may choose Christianity as being better than Islam or Hinduism or whatever, you know, is your favorite religion, but you're not a Jesus follower. Paul said, your faith, your Christian faith, makes you offer your lives as a sacrifice in serving God. And Paul's just saying, I want you to know how far this goes with me. He said, if I have to offer my own blood with your sacrifice, that wasn't like an idle thing. The guy's been in prison for four years. He's awaiting his date to appear before Caesar. And oh yeah, Caesar's name is Nero. You won't find a bloodier ruler in the Roman Empire in all of its history when it comes to being a Christian than Nero. He's just going, look, I want you to understand, in the midst of you giving, you serving, doing all that you do to serve God, if it takes my blood being mingled with your service, you know what that's going to mean for me? I'll be happy and full of joy with all of you. He said, if it costs me my life, to, if I give away everything to the point of dying to serve Jesus, hey, I'm okay with that. And you also should be happy and full of joy with me. Paul was such a, a cool example. Whatever it costs, I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. Now, I want to ask you two real pointy questions. And the first one is this. Where are you serving? I'm not standing up here to, to try and beat you up with guilt. It's just, it's time for us 
to strip away everything else that feels normal about, okay, this is the sermon time, we're going to listen to the preacher for a little while, and then we're going to go home. Okay, can you forget that for a minute? I just need to talk to you as my brothers and sisters in the room and ask you this question, where are you serving? Freedom has got to be a different kind of church. If it's not going to be, we don't need to bother with what we're doing. There are plenty of places that we can go and just be ordinary. If this is going to be an extraordinary place that makes a difference, it cannot happen unless across the board we say, we're not going to be the normal church. In the normal church, 20% of the people do almost all of the serving, almost all of the giving, almost all of the work of the ministry, and those are ordinary churches. I'm not saying that to bash the other churches. That's just the norm in America. Most churches are a comfortable place for marginally committed people to get together and in soft padded seats with nice air conditioning and you know the stuff that makes everything feel sort of smooth and comfortable. People can come and go and feel like they got their spiritual tanks sort of refilled and now I feel better about myself and maybe I'll be a better Christian this week. That doesn't count for Jack. If you aren't giving something of yourself away, please don't let this be another ordinary church. I mean, it's really up to you. Do you want freedom to just be another place where most people just come and go and hopefully the preaching will be good and hopefully the singing will be good and hopefully our kids got something worthwhile and then we all go back home? Who wants that? I don't think there's one person in this room who's going, yeah, I'm kind of hoping that's where we land. I hope we're going to be another church where 20% do 80% of the work so that nothing's really done extraordinary. Nobody in the room wants that. What are you going to do about it? I'm not here to heap guilt on you. I'm just talking to you straight. And I'm not saying this in a vacuum. Because I'm looking around as your pastor and we've got some significant problems. Yes, problems. And it's not people fighting. It's not people working against the leadership. It's not folks who are at odds. We're all loving each other and loving Jesus, but most of us are on cruise control right now. There are not many people who are giving much of their time and energy away. That cannot continue. This will not be a difference-making church if we live in cruise control mode where this is the extent of our service. If all you did was come to worship today, I'm glad you're here but you haven't made a difference in anybody's life other than your own by coming to worship. This isn't your service to God. What are you doing to serve? One of the highest callings, one of the most significant callings that we have on, on our lives. I mean, look around the room at who's here. This is almost exclusively the grown-ups of the church. God's call on our lives is to influence and impact the next generation. There are not many people in this church who make an investment with our teenagers or our children or our preschoolers in any significant way that are willing to make a, a regular, involved kind of investment. Oh, we have got to get past this place of it being, you know, well, if you can't find anybody else, if you ask me enough times and make me feel guilty enough, you know, I'll be a helper. Or you can put me on the rotation. I could be there once a month. Or I could be there twice a month. Somebody, somewhere up and down the line, a bunch of somebodies have got to say, uh-uh, I, 
I'm not leaving it to somebody generically out there to say that generation matters. The golden window of opportunity is while kids are in grade school and in middle school for them to come to faith in Christ. And it's you and I who have got to be the ones to do that. Yes, the parents are the first line of defense. But when it comes to the ministry of the church, we are the ones who've got to step in and say, you know what, I will give the time to do that. I'm willing to be here for two hours on Wednesday night. I'm willing to stay over during the second service to be with the teenagers or to work with our kids. I'm willing to be there because I understand I'm not just a helper. God has a calling on my life and I'm going to do something that matters in the lives of these kids. I get it. There are some in the room that it's like, oh, I do not naturally connect with the generation. Some of you don't need to work with the kids. You are not blessed with the gift to do that. I get it. But let me just say, some people are using that as an excuse. I, listen, I understand. Looking around the room, we don't have many teenagers in the room. Jace, Nick, any other teenagers in the room? I'm not trying to be offensive. We all were teenagers once. I get it. A lot of times teenagers act like aliens and none of us connect well with aliens. But, you know, don't use that as an excuse to go, well, that's not my calling just because some of it feels awkward. I was a student pastor for years. There was a part of that every day of my life that felt awkward. Why? Because I was an adult working with kids and teenagers at that. And there's a hard side to that. I'm, I'm hanging on on this point because this is so critically important in our church right now. There are not many people who work in our preschool ministry who don't get paid to do so. That's a sad commentary. We need to change that trend. We need for some people to step up, and it doesn't need to be the people who are already serving in two or three areas of ministry, who are already leading and hosting small group and working on the praise team or working in the media booth or whatever. We need for some people who have been comfortable to decide it's time to be uncomfortable to serve God by serving others. And the other thing, it's about serving and it's about giving. Again, I just want to ask you pointedly. I, I don't care what you give. And I'm happy to be able to say I have no idea who gives and who doesn't give. I don't look at that and I intentionally don't allow myself to be exposed to that. I don't want to know what you give. But it matters what you give. can't follow Jesus and not be a giver. Are you growing in the grace of giving? Paul said that we should excel above all these other things. He says, excel in the grace of giving. Are you intentional in, in having a giving plan so that you're giving more in 2014 than you gave in 2013? This is a part of God growing us up and He always blesses our generosity as He uses us to bless others. And so, Having a plan for giving. Now, I, I've laid out five different exercises, five different specific things to consider and do. And here's the problem with what I've shared today. We've, we've called them exercises. It works just like exercise. You know, is there anybody here who lacks for knowledge about exercises that would make you healthy? I mean, is that why we, we're flabby and, you know, overweight or puny or whatever? It's not because we didn't know an exercise to do, is it? You know, the American Medical Association, uh, I read this week, they've mapped out five different exercises to have a healthy heart. Let's see if I can remember them. They were to um, the treadmill, um, swimming, stretching, uh, weightlifting, 
and uh, aerobics classes. Those were their five. And, yeah, no, I see Nils over going, mm, I'm, I'm with you. Some of those sound good, and some of those I'm like, hmm. Five things for a healthy heart. Now, everybody at some level knows how to do most, if not all, of those exercises. Doesn't have anything to do with the knowledge of it. It's all about, you know, how many of us did those things this week? So if you'll do those, chances are you'll have a much healthier heart. We know the exercises. The problem is actually getting down to doing them. Now, here's an interesting thing to note. Before you start any new exercise or diet program, if you ever noticed, I mean, now we're afraid of litigation all the time. So there's always like a warning label attached to every book, every diet guide, every exercise guide. Consult your before you begin to see if you have any pre-existing heart condition that would keep you from being able to effectively follow this plan. Can I just tell you that the five exercises that I've given you that are not designed to give you a healthy physical heart, they're designed to help you have a happy heart in the long run, the same warning might apply. Before you try and do these five things, you need to pause and consider if you have a pre-existing heart condition that would keep you from doing these five things. Can I go ahead and tell you something in advance? You do. I do. I have a pre-existing heart condition. I was born with it. In my physical body, I was born with a heart murmur. It was a pre-existing heart condition. I had a bigger heart condition that the doctor could not diagnose when I was born. It was a rotten, selfish, hard heart. They couldn't pick that up with a stethoscope. But Jesus already diagnosed it. I had a hard, selfish heart, and so did you. Part of what I love about the Word of God is that it is just so blunt and honest. Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, 26 says, he says this, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will take away your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Isn't that good news right there to know that that old rotten heart of mine that doesn't want to do any of the five things that we talked about today. Do you know that the heart that I was born with, it doesn't want to wake up and praise God in the morning. It wants to wake up and grumble about the alarm clock going off and I want another hour of sleep. It doesn't want to give thanks in difficult things. It wants to grumble and tell you how rotten that is. My heart doesn't want to you know, give my life away to serve others and give my money away to the church and to other uh ministry organizations. I'd love to spend it on me. That's, that's my heart. Anybody else got a heart like that? I'm glad y'all are more spiritual than I am, but I, I, I struggle with that. I like spending money on me. I like spending time on me. I've got a heart problem. But the great news is, God says, I'll do a heart transplant on you. I'll take out the old, stony, hard, stubborn heart that you had, and I'll give you a new heart. It's tender, and sensitive, and it won't be hard for you to give. It won't be hard for you to serve because that new heart that I'll give you, it'll be a heart that beats with mine. It'll be a heart that's sensitive, and it hurts for the hurts of other people. It feels the needs of others. It suffers when other people suffer, and as a result, it naturally wants to reach out to give and serve and do whatever it can to minister to the needs of others. I am so grateful for that. And I am feeling the effects of that transplant taking place. There are some of you watching and listening online right now. There are some in the room who need for the first time in your life to experience the heart transplant. And only Jesus can do that. Acts chapter 4 reminds us there isn't anyone else who can change your heart and your life like that. You have to trust in the crucified and risen Son of God whose name is Jesus. If you've never done that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. 
There are a bunch of us in the room. We already belong to the family of God. We've already trusted Christ. But I think if we're real honest, if we could have a, a magic mirror to look into that showed us more than just our physical image, that if we could see the condition of our heart, what we would see is a rather hard, cold, stubborn, stony heart that Ezekiel's talking about there. You know what I'm talking about? And we need God to once again reach deep inside the deepest part of who we are and do this wonderful exchange where He takes out our old stubborn, hard, selfish hearts and He puts His heart into us. Now that may sound like just a bunch of word play, a bunch of spiritual talk from a preacher, but there's reality behind that. God loves to do that. In fact, that's what Jesus is doing in you and me. He is replacing our hearts and our ways of thinking and feeling with His own heart and His own thoughts and feelings. And it's ours for the asking to enter into that exchange. Would you be willing today to precede some really healthy exercises by getting a heart placed inside you that's capable then of doing this? Remember where we started. It is God who works in you. How deeply in you? All the way to the point of your heart. It is God who works in you, who puts in you both to will and to do what He desires. It takes a different heart, doesn't it? Would you join me as we pray together right now? Father, we thank You so much for Your faithfulness and for Your grace at work in our lives. And we pray that today, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You would bring about a real heart change in us. We realize just how powerless we are to practice the things that we've talked about today if we don't first have a real heart change. If today you need to trust Christ for the first time to experience having His heart beat in you, would you just join me in praying a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I need You. I want You living in me. I want Your heart and Your thoughts and Your passions living in me. I believe You died on the cross for me. I thank You for paying the price for my sins. And I'm asking You to come in to forgive me and to help me to live differently. I want to live to please You now. If today you're a believer who's already trusted Christ, but you realize that you need a heart change, that there are some things that really need to change, that you need to adopt these practices, but before you can do that, you really need to experience this kind of heart change, would you just indicate that by raising your hand? All I want to do is just pray for you saying, yes, I need some real heart change. I need to be burdened for the things that God's burdened for. Father, you see our hands and you know our hearts, and I ask you today to do a work in us. By your grace, would you sow into each one of us the desire and the strength to live out what you've called us to do. And we trust you for that. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.